please rate, review, and subscribe to Dare to Explore wherever you listen to podcasts. Dare to Explore is presented by the Space Camp Explorers Club, a new way to support the U.S. Space and Rocket Center and Space Camp. Members of the Space Camp Explorers Club gain exclusive access to content, behind-the-scenes stories, and members-only swag. To learn more, visit SpaceCampExplorersClub.org. This most recent flight, we flew something like 150 meters, which is three times usually what a rover drives in one day. That's a huge improvement. And, you know, we did it in like two minutes instead of the rover, which would take hours wow. to drive that far. You know, this is a huge improvement on uh, mobility on Mars. So hopefully, you know, we'll be able to, to figure out how to help the rover so we can drive farther and maybe we can fly to places that the rover can't really drive to get images and help the science team that the rover wouldn't necessarily be able to get that information for. Carrie Bean is a systems engineer for NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory. She's a deputy lead rover planner on the Curiosity rover. She's also a helicopter integration engineer for the Perseverance rover and Ingenuity helicopter currently on Mars. I'm Ryan Faricelli. Join me as I learn what makes this extraordinary individual Dare to explore. I've got a spaceship that I'm waiting for. I'm flying up to the stars. I'm gonna dare to explore this time. I'll let you know what I find. My dad was a military contractor, so I moved around quite a bit as a kid. So I was born in Fairfax, Virginia, close to Washington, D.C., then moved to the San Antonio area, then moved to the Charleston, South Carolina area, then back to the Fairfax, Virginia area, and then back to the San Antonio area before I finally went off to college, and now I've been doing my own thing. (laughs) I had always been interested in weather. I grew up, you know, mostly in the South, and so I was either running away from tornadoes or hurricanes or anything in between. So I was always really fascinated with weather and uh, didn't actually really get interested in space until closer to high school. You know, I mean, I had like a telescope as a kid and, you know, I was kind of aware of like constellations and, you know, astronomy and that sort of thing. So I wasn't like totally out of tune of of space, but it really wasn't until high school that I got interested. Was there an event or a thing that that kind of brought you know, that the idea of space and, and NASA kind of to your mind? Yeah. So my family was doing the whole like Florida theme park vacation. And it just so happened to be the same week as the launch of STS-114, which was uh, Discovery's return to flight after the Columbia disaster. And so since we were in the area, my parents were like, well, let's get in the car and just see if we can go see the space shuttle launch. <laughs> and so, you know, we were pulled over on the side of the freeway and I saw that space shuttle launch. And we were many, many, many miles away and you could still feel the vibration and hear it. And I was just like, OK, maybe space is cool. Maybe I should look into that. <laughs> So I kind of like deep dove into space topics, whether it was astronomy or rockets or just kind of everything tangentially related to space. And 
Then it was getting to be time to like figure out what I was going to do for college. And at that point, I started having the crisis of like, oh, no, do I like continue to study weather or do I do some sort of like aerospace engineering, astronomy? Like, what do I do? Um, so I finally decided that I would just continue to study weather since that had kind of been my longest love so far. And a lot of it would be applicable to the other fields if I did decide, you know, a lot of the first two years of your meteorology degree are just math, physics, you know, all sorts of basic classes that are going to apply pretty much no matter what of that path that I chose. Um, and when I got to the university, I went to Texas A&M University. Uh, it turns out there's a professor there that studied the weather on Mars. My mind went, there it is, the combination. Um, so that's how I got to combine my two loves of space and weather at the same time. You graduated from Texas A&M, I'm assuming with uh, your, your bachelor's was in, was in science. I mean, is there astro-meteorology? Yeah, so, <laughs> yeah. so my bachelor's was in meteorology, and I also got minors in math and earth sciences. And then I also stayed there for my master's degree, which became a more generic atmospheric science. But a lot of the classes I got to take as an undergrad, they actually had an option for you to do research as an undergrad. So a lot of my extracurricular major classes were uh, studying and doing all of this work with the different Mars rovers. Uh, my math minor was mostly because you already were taking enough math classes. You might as well take the one extra and get it. And then the earth sciences is actually really funny because they offered a planetary geology class. And so I was interested in taking that, you know, that's studying like the geology surfaces of the different planets. And uh, it turns out that counted as credit towards the earth science uh, minor. And so I just decided to go for that too. So. Uh, I got to kind of customize my degree quite a bit to fit in all the, the spacey stuff that I wanted to do. While I was at AM, I actually got to work on a lot of these Mars rovers just as a student. Uh, my professor was Dr. Mark Lemon, and he started out originally working on Titan's atmosphere and then got a bit of a Martian focus. Like he had worked on Pathfinder, he's worked on all the Mars rovers so far. Um, he is like the atmospheric guru for Mars if you have anything to do with cameras. <laughs> yeah, it was like my first semester or my first year of college, uh, second semester. Uh, at the beginning, he's like, hey, what are you doing over spring break? And I'm like, yeah, you know, I'm not really doing anything. I wasn't really the, the go out and party type. And he's like, well, how would you like to go to a planetary science conference? You don't have to present or anything. Just go and learn and network and, and everything. So I was like, sure. So that was my whole spring break. And then I come back from that and I've got like five billion questions for him because it's my first exposure to like really the science community in general. And then at the end of that, uh, you know, discussion, he's like, so what do you do in the summer? It's like, I'm, I don't know you know, maybe take some summer classes, you know, whatever. It's like, how would you like to come work on a Mars mission the whole summer? And I'm like, did you really have to ask? <laughs> and that was the Phoenix mission. So uh, that's how I got involved. <laughs> he just kind of threw me in. <laughs> <laughs> and so getting all of that experience, I already got to know a lot of people at JPL because they're JPL missions. And so when I was getting ready to graduate, I kind of went to them and said, hey, to graduate in a couple months, you know, what kind of jobs would be available? And so uh, luckily that all worked out. So you started at JPL then right away, right out of right out of your master's. Yep. My start day was actually one year to the day from when Curiosity landed. It makes it really easy to remember. 
My first project that I worked on at JPL was actually the Dawn mission, which went to the main asteroid belt and orbited Vesta and Ceres. So when I joined, it had already left Vesta and was on the way to Ceres. And I was a little skeptical at first because I had no experience with asteroids. My degree was in meteorology and this asteroid doesn't really have an atmosphere. <laughs> so I was really kind of confused, like what's going to happen? Um, but a lot of the same process that we use to plan the activities for the Mars rovers are the same that we use to plan other missions. It's just not, you know, the rovers we plan almost every single day to react to what we're seeing new in real time, whereas the orbiters, you kind of know where you've been and you know where you're going. You're on a trajectory, so you can kind of plan a bit in advance. But it was the same kind of flow. And so it actually felt a lot more familiar than I thought it was going to. So I worked on the, the series mission all the way through the end of the Dawn mission. And uh, it was kind of interesting. I got to meet like a whole bunch of new scientists that I had never really like talked or interacted to, got used to what it was like working at JPL instead of kind of on the other side as the science team member. I gained a lot of knowledge, um, lots of like engineering side stuff that I didn't really learn in college. Like um, we have test beds now for Dawn. It's just racks of computers that simulate it. You can't, you know, simulate a floating spacecraft uh, <laughs> here on Earth. And so, you know, we had computers, but it was never something that I had really had to experience before. So I got to learn all about that and how do you test? How do you write procedures to test? You know, all these different things that I, I didn't get to know before. So it was a really good learning mission for me. When the Dawn mission was starting to get a little more routine and we were getting into our extended mission, they said, well, if you want to go work on something else part time, you know, you, you can go find something. So I immediately ran back to the opportunity team and said, hey, can I have a job again, please? Spirit <laughs> <laughs> opportunity are like my favorite rovers. And so I jumped at the chance to, to come back. So when Spirit died, I was still in college, but uh, my advisor, Dr. Mark Lemon, had uh, told me right before class started, <laughs> and I just like cried the whole class. Um, but yeah, so for opportunity, I was working on our engineering team, and I was one of the very last engineers around for that end of mission. So I was the uplink lead for the final two weeks of plans that we sent. So I was there in mission control as they were trying to send the last commands to try and recover the rover. It was, it was a good cathartic experience. Like you could kind of like let go and everyone was there with you. And uh, it was really good to like see everyone, but also in kind of a sad way, but in a like, we were also kind of pleased because we never really knew what was going to kill opportunity. We've already lived through a bad dust storm at back in 2007, 2008 timeframe. You know, we've had other parts break and we've learned how to work around it. We were always afraid it would be like us that accidentally broke the rover, <laughs> like sent up a bad command or we got stuck somewhere or whatever it was. And so we were actually kind of glad that it was like Mars that killed the rover. It took literally <laughs> the worst dust storm in Mars recorded history to kill the rover. So we took some solace in that fact. <laughs> when when they decide uh, or determine the, the estimated lifespan of these rovers, like you said, these were supposed to only last like 90 days. You know, is, is that just like a conservative guess or how did, how, what makes them decide 90 days is the magic number? The 90 day number actually came from the Pathfinder mission. They had an experiment that monitored how much dust was falling onto the rover. And, um, 
that little instrument actually said like probably within about 90 days you would have enough accumulation of dust that the solar panels wouldn't function anymore so that's kind of where the estimate came out they're like you know 90 days maybe an extra 10 you know somewhere around there well it turns out that we sent spirit opportunity to places where dust doesn't fall as quickly as it did on the pathfinder mission and uh the winds actually really helped so every once in a while the martian winds will actually come and blow the dust off the solar panels so kind of that combination of two things ended up uh, really helping us and that's why they kept going while we were still trying to recover opportunity that was also the time that the dawn mission had ended so i had some free time and i didn't really know like if we didn't get opportunity back what would i be doing and one of the last things i was training to do for opportunity was actually how to become one of the rover drivers i had done almost every engineering role up to that point on the rover that was like the last one that i was trying to get and uh of course when we lost mission i never got to complete my training so the curiosity team they have classes of new rover drivers about once a year maybe every two years and they were just about to start a new class And they said, hey, well, you know, we technically have already filled this class, but we know that you almost finished. And it's like a lot of the same software, uh, the suspension system's the same. It's just at a different scale because the rover's bigger. You know, there's a couple differences, but you've got a lot of the background. So, you know, why don't you come finish your training on Curiosity? I was like, okay. Uh, So, yeah, I joined Curiosity again uh, in late 2018. And I am still one of the rover drivers for Curiosity. In fact, I'm the deputy lead rover driver for Curiosity now. I had also heard about this helicopter thing that might be happening on Perseverance. And I have been trying to get on this helicopter for a long, long time. I was just like, you're flying something through the atmosphere that I studied. Like, I just want to be a part of it. And so I lucked out and a spot opened up and I managed to be a part of the helicopter team too. So that's that's been my life goal has been checked off. <laughs> <laughs> the helicopter is called in- Ingenuity. Yep. So Ingenuity just made its first batch of flights here. So it's been, I guess, a very busy and exciting time. The uh, helicopter Ingenuity was essentially a tech demo that's only supposed to last 30 days. And the point was basically to prove, can we fly around on Mars? Like, how far can we push the technology? You know, uh, if you think back to the Sojourner rover, it was just basically a shoebox with wheels, tiny little thing, not a whole lot of instruments. And that was also a tech demo just to prove, can we drive rovers on Mars? And then you think about curiosity and perseverance, not that much later uh, of how much more capable they are. And so this is kind of the pathway for maybe future aerial missions to Mars. And so that was one of the things that really excited me about this. And so, you know, there was a whole bunch of days where we had to actually deploy from the rover because the helicopter was tucked up on the belly of Perseverance. And so we had to spend several days scouting for a safe location where we could fly the helicopter. And once we kind of picked our location, which happened to be really close to our landing site, We then had to go through the process of getting the helicopter off and then the rover had to drive away. Um, We didn't want to be close to the helicopter just in case like it kicked up too much dust or something like that that could potentially hurt the rover. We didn't want to hurt the rover. So the rover had to drive away. And then we got to do some flights. So our first one was just very simple. Go up a couple meters, stay there, come back down. Next one was go up a little bit, move a little bit away, come back, come down. (laughs) And, you know, now 
on our fifth flight, we actually went up higher than we ever had before, flew as fast as we ever had before, and we landed in a new location that hadn't been scouted really by the rover or the helicopter too much before. So, you know, we spent a very particular amount of time on these first couple of flights, you know, making sure everything was perfect and we'd keep the helicopter safe. And now we're getting to really push the limits of what we can do with the helicopter. And so my particular role was called helicopter integration engineer. And so my particular role was to kind of be the interface between the rover and the helicopter team. So I was not the person who would like send the commands to the helicopter or like figure out where to fly it or anything like that. But it was, you know, are we keeping the rover safe? Are we far enough away? Um, are the images we're taking pointing at the right location, happening at the right time to catch the flight? Um, does the... Um, time that we have our antennas on is it the right time to catch all of the helicopter flight like all that kind of little details of interfacing between the helicopter and the rover team that was kind of what my role um, was doing is flying a helicopter on mars different than flying a helicopter here on earth so the main uh difference is that you cannot command in real time so mars is far enough away it spends three to 14 minutes of a one-way light time for you to get any sort of reaction. And this is why they always call like the landing on Mars the seven minutes of terror, because by the time you've landed on the surface, you're just getting the signal that you hit the top of the atmosphere. So there is nothing you can do to control landing on the surface. And so it's kind of the same thing with rover driving, helicopter flying, like you can't do it in real time. And so you have to think through what are all the things that can go wrong? How can we protect our spacecraft to make sure that the things don't go wrong? Or if they do go wrong, how can we make sure that it ends up in a safe spot? Um, you know, if there's no joysticks, nothing like that. So, you know, it's, it's a different uh, kind of experience. You basically are telling it exactly what to do. Um, Does the, and then you hope a couple hours later you find out what happens. What, what about the difference in the, the air? Does the fact that there's not like the same amounts of oxygen and things like that, does that affect flight? Because gravity is different as well. I would think all of those things would maybe affect you know, how it flies. So we were able to do a little bit of testing here on Earth. So obviously you can't really change the gravity, but what they could do is kind of have it on like a rope and pulley system to try and somewhat lift off uh, some of the weight, kind of simulate what gravity would be like. Um, and then they were able to put in a vacuum chamber, which normally they would pump down to be a vacuum when testing other spacecraft, but they can put it to like Mars pressure. Hmm. And so, you know, we were able to somewhat test and, and get a feel for it here on Earth. Um, but it's a whole different thing in the environment where you've got the wind blowing and all that kind of stuff going, right? So, um, you know, I can tell you the engineers were really tense in the room until we got the data coming down saying like, yes, we flew and here's how we flew. That's the whole point of the tech demo of like, we can't really prove it here on Earth. We have to send it there and try it. Right. Did you get data that said you flew first or did you get to see, did you get to watch it when it flew first? What, what arrives first? It depended on what room you were in. <laughs> okay. So I wasn't in the I wasn't in the main room where the helicopter team was. I was kind of in a side room, and so we happened to have one of the imaging engineers in our room. So he had a picture up before the helicopter team had said on the line that we had flown. <laughs> Their data was still coming in. So you know, I was trying to be really quiet, like, oh my gosh, I knew that we flew, but I can't really like say anything yet. So that was kind of fun. <laughs> yeah. And it's funny, a lot of the helicopter parts are actually just off the shelf parts. They're chips that you can buy off the shelf. The LiDAR system you can buy online. Huh. Like 
know, it wasn't like custom-made hardware for a lot of this. A lot of, you know, part of this tech demo was just proving, okay, can we take these off-the-shelf parts and will they work in space? Right. So that was another component as well. So that just seemed like a really cool fact to me. Like most yeah. of the rover stuff is really like super custom-made now, but this was just kind of like, you could almost build it yourself if you wanted to. <laughs> That's amazing. So what has what have we learned from from flying this helicopter aside from just could we do it? So that's been the main thing is can we do it? And the answer is yes. And <laughs> we're now learning how accurate can we be? You know, what are the winds like at the different altitudes that may affect us? Um, things that we weren't able to really have with the rover, even though they have weather stations, they're not measuring the winds at 10 meters above the surface or something like that, you know? So uh, now we're really getting into performance of how can we turn the images into being able to scout for new landing locations for the helicopter, or potentially fly ahead of the rover and figure out how the rover can, you know, can make its drive path. Um, you know. So that's really this kind of new part of our extended mission is, okay, we've proven we can fly. How can we now use the technology to help the rovers? We're just starting to get into that phase. So it'll be pretty exciting to see what we learn over the next couple weeks, months, however long it lasts. What's the life expectancy guess? We are looking every 30 days at a time. We really don't know because <laughs> this is all off the shelf stuff. It's not really space designed, you know, it could die tomorrow. It could die months from now. We really don't know. Now, when you're not working on the, the helicopter, you're also uh, working on the Mars Science Lab. Mars Science Lab is also known as Curiosity Rover. Basically, I'm one of the rover drivers. Um, not too long ago, became deputy lead rover driver. And so uh, a lot of what I get to do now, instead of just driving the rover, um, the role it technically is called rover planner. So not only do we drive, but we also operate the robotic arm as well and do any sort of the drilling operations, anything like that. Um, one of my main things right now, in addition to doing that on a regular basis, is I actually get to train all of the new rover drivers and, and arm operators. I do that, you know, all the paperwork, all the other stuff <laughs> that goes on on the side, I get to help out with. How, so. many, how many drivers are there? I mean, does... Because I'm assuming like science goes 24-7 on, on the rovers, right? So we typically plan on like Monday, Wednesday, Friday and plan the activities for the next day or two. And so, um, you know, we'll, we'll come in in the morning and science will say, okay, we want to, you know, put the robotic arm down on this particular target and study it with the science instruments that are on the end of the arm. And then they'll say, okay, after that, we want to drive to this rock in the distance because the next day we want to put the arm down on this target and study it. And so once we get that kind of information from science, then it's up to us to figure out, is it safe to put the arm down on that target? Are you going to like smack it into the side of another rock? You don't want to do that. So how do we, you know, safely uh, do those things? And then, you know, as we're driving, you have to look out for, are there rocks too big the rover can't drive over? You know, are there sand pits that we might get stuck in? You know, you have to develop a safe driving path. And then you spend part of your day just writing the code that's actually going to do those commands and, you know, actually drive the rover, move the robotic arm around. And then you kind of bundle it all up at the end of the day with the rest of the activities. Cause there's like someone in charge of the cameras. There's someone in charge of this science instrument. That's like writing the commands for that component. At the end of the day, it all gets bundled together, modeled to make sure that we're not going to break the rover in any way. And then it gets sent to Mars. And then we come in the next day, we find out what happened and <laughs> we'll say, okay, everything worked fine. Let's do it. Or maybe we didn't drive as far as we thought we would or something like that. And so then you react and you continue on. So it's what? pretty fun. 
What happens if something goes wrong? Kind of depends on the severity of the problem. So um, sometimes the rover wheel can just get stuck on a rock and all we do is just back up and try again. You know, <laughs> very simple, no big deal. Um, if it's something more severe, so we've had computer problems before, then it's pretty much like all hands on deck. You know, you start having lots of meetings, you figure out what you want to do. Um, you know, you may send very specialized commands that you don't really send all the time. Um, it just, it really depends on the severity of the problem. When it hits a rock uh, and a wheel spins or something, it, is the rover program to just stop or does it try to just keep going till you all spin the, the four minutes that it takes to tell it to stop? What happens? Yeah, so one of the main reasons that being a rover driver takes so long to get your driver's license on is... Uh, it's usually like a, at least a two-year program. And that's partially because you have to think through all those things. We have so many like buttons and knobs that we can tweak, uh, metaphorically speaking, uh, to be able to tell the rover how safe or unsafe we want it to be. Um, so we can really control and tweak that. Um, you know, if we think that it's a clear path, no problems, you know, we may be pretty loose with our um, abilities, but if it's like we're in really nasty terrain and we don't even want to stray a little bit to the side, we may be very particular with our commands and it may stop the rover short and we just accept that. Uh, right now for curiosity, we're heading into winter, so things are getting a bit colder and uh, we're actually st starting to see a lot more clouds in the sky. And so we've been doing a lot of cloud imaging and just getting some really pretty movies going on. Um, we're also transitioning from what we call the clay unit, where from orbit with some of our spacecraft there, we saw clay minerals. And we're transitioning more into what's called the sulfate unit, where they see a lot more sulfates. And um, so science is really interested in this uh, transition and boundary. So we've been spending a lot of time really studying the ground as we're going across this kind of transition area of like what is actually happening to the chemistry of the rocks as we're going over it. So I know the science team is really happy and that always makes me happy when we make them happy. <laughs> <laughs> so what do you, what's next for you, you think? I definitely want to be on a helicopter until the day it dies, whenever that may be. <laughs> um, that is like my number one exciting thing right now. Um, and then for curiosity, you know, one of the things I really liked about getting to work on Opportunity was that I got to do all these different roles that I normally wouldn't have been able to do. And so I'm hoping to kind of continue that with curiosity, learn a lot of new things that I wouldn't have learned before, try and learn more about the actual engineering side of the rover instead of maybe just driving it, maybe learn about some of the other systems, like how we keep the rover warm or things like that and, and learn more for myself. You know, there's, there's a lot of opportunities even just within the one rover and hopefully curiosity will keep going for a long time. And then uh, after that, who knows? <laughs> I certainly started out that way. And then as I learned more about being an astronaut and realized like how many needles you have to be poked with and all those sorts of like medical exams and stuff they went in, I was like, maybe I'll just let the robots go instead. <laughs> I'll stay here. You're the, you're the second person I've interviewed that has very specifically cited the amount of needles. <laughs> I don't mind getting shots and everything, but like all of the extra tests that you have to go through, I'm like, mm, maybe I'm not into that. <laughs> My number one piece of advice is be okay with failure. If you're not failing, that means you're not pushing yourself hard enough and you're not learning. Um, that's the most important thing is learning from your mistakes. 
Um, I will flat out say that I failed my first math class in college and I'm still driving rovers on Mars. You know, one failure, two failures, however many it is, is not going to stop you. You know, I know people who definitely do not have perfect GPAs, but that's because they spent all their time doing hands-on projects on the side and learning. Um, so, you know, you don't have to be a 4.0 perfect student to, to do this. You know, push yourself, learn, learn from your mistakes, keep going. I've got a spaceship that I'm waiting for I'm flying up to the stars I'm gonna dare to explore this time And I'll let you know what